Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Martin Edwards is a professor in the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University, where he teaches classes on international organizations. So I asked him if we need the UN, if there is a case for suspending Russia from the UN, as it wages a war against Ukraine, and what it can and cannot do about the Gaza conflict. We also talk about the veto the P5 countries are using, and I would say misusing, and about what the UN needs except for reforms. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Martin, let's look at two conflicts that are currently the most visible. The war in Gaza and the Russian invasion. Let me start with Ukraine. It's a huge interstate war with a clear aggressor. We all know that Russia started this war. Regarding this, did the UN justify its role? In terms of how the UN should probably prevent and solve the conflict. Or it's simply too much to ask from the UN, and in the end, it's up to the big guys to do something. So how do you see the role of the UN in all of this? It's a good question. I think a lot of folks, when they looked at the world now, they're trying to figure out where the UN is, right? Because the UN is not, you know, making people talk to each other, right? That's still the realm of sovereign states to decide. And that's always been the case, right? And especially with Russia being P5 member of the Security Council, that sort of adds an extra layer of this. You have to walk a little more gingerly. But I do think that the UN has been, especially with regards to Russia, has been a forum for sort of helping build a coalition in opposition to Russian aggression. You know, had the UN not existed, that what would have happened? President Biden and European leaders would have called a summit with lots of other countries to do this work. So the fact that, you know, that didn't happen, you know, that's uh, actually shows a role for the UN. But that having been said, the UN cannot make Russia or, you know, any sovereign country really do stop doing something that it wants to keep doing. But that's by design, right? Sovereign states didn't design this institution, give this institution authority that would somehow limit them. So we have to kind of think about that in the background. And also, I think the other thing too that's worth thinking about when you think about the role of the UN, there's actually multiple roles and multiple pieces here because that's different bodies. If action is stymied in the Security Council, that doesn't mean it can't take place in the General Assembly, which we've certainly seen in both conflicts. Also, I think the Secretary General has been out in front on both conflicts and making statements that have ruffled feathers from time to time. But, you know, again, trying to keep the focus on limiting the scope of violence against civilians in both conflicts, trying to figure out, you know, how do we solve, how do we get to a back to a Black Sea grain deal with regards to Russia, Ukraine? There's obviously been different pieces here, and it might look like there's not a lot of results, but that's also, there's a reason for 
of that. I think that, that we need to sort of have that in the back of our minds when we evaluate the role of the UN here. So the UN has two main bodies, the UN Security Council and the General Assembly. The UN General Assembly has condemned Russia's actions, and I have to say that I very much agree with what you just said. And having the UN option will lead to a situation in which the Western leaders would have to convince other leaders around the world to support Ukraine or at least condemn Russia. But on the other hand, this is perhaps a bit provocative question, how many countries who condemn Russia in the General Assembly really mean this? Is the General Assembly just a big talking shop? You can obviously question any one country, you know, well, okay, they might have said this, but what are they actually doing? That's certainly true. If it is a country that borders Russia, they might think, okay, well, we're going to criticize them here, but we're not going to stop trading with them or something like that, right? We're certainly still happy to buy weapons from them. So agreed, but there is nothing new about (laughs) politicians saying one thing and doing something else. That's not a 21st century innovation. But I think as part of a sort of a conscious strategy of coalition building, the General Assembly played a role in basically cutting the rhetoric out from everything that Putin said to justify the war, that there's no basis for any of this stuff, any of these rationales that were brought forth to why we need to invade our neighbor. So I think that, you know, that makes a difference. And obviously, plenty of Russians, even though they can't meaningfully speak out or protest without risk of threats to their person, they're well aware that this has been a, a calamitous misstep. And this is going to be Putin's legacy. So when we hear countries like, for example, Kenya, having very strong statements against Russia, and of course, Russia is many times trying to protect itself, like, you know, we fight for you, we fight against the legacy of colonialism and imperialism, and the fact is that this legacy exists. But of course, I would very much question that Russia is really fighting against it, but the legacy exists. So when the country like Kenya, and I'm losing this example because it was quite prominent one, is really condemning Russia, does it really matter, especially for the countries with a similar history, maybe with similar political alliances, and so on? Does it matter? I think it can certainly matter for other countries that might be confronting similar issues, right? Do we condemn this or not, right? The fact that there are countries in the region that are out front on this, I think that that's influential, right? Because then that then what happens? They're not going in alone. They don't have to think, okay, well, this could be provocative or something like that. It's like, you know, this is actually us as African countries kind of speaking truth to power. Is that any one decision going to change Putin's mind? Of course not. Economic sanctions have caused tremendous pain in Russia, have not changed Putin's mind. Does that mean that those were ill-suited or ineffective? No. I mean, it's just, again, at the end of the day, this is about countries choosing to bear the cost of their decisions or not. But the diplomatic criticism, obviously, I think we can absolutely agree that this is not keeping Putin up at night. The economic costs should keep Putin up at night because it's basically largely wrecked the Russian economy. We had been talking about the General Assembly, so let's look at the UN Security Council. And as you said, the special area here is that Russia is the P5 country. Anyway, how to suspend Russia? <laughs> well, you know, that, that's a, 
that's the interesting thing, right? Is the Ukrainians were trying to think, and the fact that the fact that Ukraine went to the UN, you know, used the UN in this way is kind of an. In, while it's a it's sort of a complicated international legal argument, it sort of underscores the value of the UN, right? It's, it is actually something that gives a voice to those folks that might not have as much voice for those countries. You know, is there a case for suspending Russia? Well, no. I mean, it's just, it's, it, you know, it, it, but it's an interesting con- kind of a convoluted argument. It'd be delightful if possible, but, you know, not really, not terribly likely. It's not as if the other P5 countries said, it's like, hey, well, we should, you know, we should take note of this, right? You know, this is why countries are leery about any initiatives, the P5 countries are any initiatives about uh, limiting use of the veto, right? Again, interesting idea, but if they want that freedom to be able to use the veto, so therefore they're not going to sort of tie their hands. It does make things, you know, a little more complicated. And I think it, does, it it it's also where people can get very frustrated with the UN because this same country that is leading this war is blocking any efforts to criticize it. I think the fact that argumentation that's advanced that's advanced by Russia is not compelling anybody. It's not persuading anybody. You know, they're just relying on the fact that, well, we were given this veto a long, long time ago. And so we're going to continue to use. But again, it uh, that and that delegitimizes Russia globally. It's hard to imagine other countries thinking, oh yeah, we can absolutely trust Putin. If we sign an agreement with him, he'd certainly honor it. Like, no. He obviously didn't honor sort of the fundamental rules about respecting borders. Actually, do you think it would be good to have a mechanism that would allow to suspend a B5 country? For example, something with a very high threshold. Let's say the P5 country would be suspended if every member of the General Assembly would agree on this. And I'm not saying that it should be like this. I'm just trying to think out of the box. I don't see this one being a starter. I think the U.S. might very well say, you know what? In this situation, it'd be great if we could find another tool to beat the Russians with. But they also know full well any rule you put in is going to stick. And they wouldn't want any circumstances coming where this could be boomeranged you know, to use against the U.S., right? And also, I, I, I think it would just involve, like, the Security Council would sort of have to give up its view that it's kind of the upper chamber, which I don't see happening. <laughs> but, but again, the fact that we're, we're having this discussion to get speaks to uh, how do we use this forum to conduct international multilateral diplomacy more efficiently rather than the conventional debate that we hear in the U.S., like, should we have this at all? You mentioned that the General Secretary Antonio Gutierrez reacts to the conflict, but he is also facing criticism from various parties that maybe he's not impartial enough and that he's saying things that others don't like. Of course, in the end, countries are entitled to have opinions about specific situations. But do calls like this undermine the role of the Secretary General and maybe at least partly undermine the whole role of the UN? They think a lot about what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. 
I think there's a certain amount of conscious deliberation that goes into when I turn this microphone on, how are we going to pitch this? He is still going to have to deal with these countries next week and the week after that. And I think in a very real sense, from Guterres' standpoint, what would have been a statement that would have made Israelis totally and completely happy? What would that have sounded like? It would have been a statement like many politicians that we need to give Israel its full support as it defends itself and then not worry about the other principles that might be in jeopardy. You know, and foremost, it's making sure that we protect innocent civilians who are not, you know, who protect non-combatants. And I know it gets very slippery very quickly, but it's a difficult thing for college professors to talk about in a classroom. So it's really, really, really difficult, magnified by seven billion, for the Secretary General to try to figure out how do you position yourself here. And I think there's been lots of folks who have maybe said things and needed to walk them back a little bit. I, that's not uncommon, but it reflects deliberation rather than just being emotional. The Czech Defense Minister, Yana Chernokova, recently said that Czechia should leave the UN. Part of there is frustration related to the Russian war, as the UN is unable to stop Russia. But of course, Czechia is also a huge supporter of Israel. Usually there is very little criticism from Czech politicians regarding what Israel is doing. And so she said, let's leave the UN as the UN criticizes Israel. And she was at least somewhat supported by some people, but many also reacted that this is madness and Czechia should try this. So if we are talking about a developed country like Czechia with 10 million people in Central Europe, what does the UN mean for such a country? There was also this argument that the UN doesn't give anything to Czechia, so why to be there? It's certainly for a developed country, that's certainly true. But I think this is a common kind of argument that is sometimes is made in the US as well. We don't like being criticized and so we should leave. That was tremendously common in the last administration. Also but, in the Bush administration, I would say. Yeah, well, that's also quite true. Yeah. Um, but I think the danger is then what you're doing is you're foregoing use of a tool to advance your interests. And so the question is, is this issue so fundamentally important that we should sever ties? And so that would mean we would never, you know, we wouldn't ever seek to use the General Assembly or use, you know, have our, from the standpoint of this defense minister, have my boss come to address the UN as a way to articulate other aspects of our foreign policy, which may or may not, you know, have issue have there could be just about anything, that would be forfeit. The question is like, okay, so as a tool for us to advance in our interests, do we really want to forego using that going forward? And I get that issues are important and you can certainly, you know, every country has a right to certainly say, we don't like being criticized about this, which is certainly fine. But, you know, to sort of like for go the use of that tool for the remainder of your administration and for everyone that comes after it just seems, you know, just a little bit more driven by emotion than by like sober calculation. Martin, I asked you at the beginning about the role of the UN in the Russian war. What about Gaza? What's the role of the UN there? And to be honest, I don't think it makes that much sense to compare those two wars, but you might disagree. So the UN and what's going on in Gaza. What's going on with Israel and versus Hamas? Where is the UN? Well, I think there are some similarities here because 
while this doesn't involve a P5 member, it certainly involves a country with a huge supporter who is a P5 member, right? And so the the Security Council has been sort of stuck on what do we call the thing that we want? Does this say humanitarian pause? Is this a ceasefire? But that reflects a U.S. desire to basically insulate Israel from a bit of pressure. So I think there has been a bit more of a, there's still P5 politics here. There has been a bit of a learning process involved to try to figure out what the role of the UN ought to be. But I definitely think that continuing to insist on protection of innocents and civilians and continuing to remind people that even in, and as Trudeau said the other day, it's like even either war has of that, you know, the UN's going to be called upon, well, has already been called upon to all of these folks that are in Gaza and are moving south. They're going to end up in camps that are going to be, you know, refugee camps that are going to be run by the UN. Those folks, I remember hearing a UN official saying, we need to get ready for the scope of this because we already have thousands of people in these camps and these numbers are going to just grow exponentially. The UN's going to be counted on trying to protect the innocents and clothe, feed, house them. And this is not going to go forever. The Israelis at some point are going to achieve their objectives. We could dispute what those are. We dispute how we would know. And there's going to need some basic stuff that's going to involve the UN intensively. If there is no more, you know, who's going to govern? Right, that's going to be a UN-shaped process, you know, with some sort of need for elections, and then of course the task of rebuilding this country, which is going to be immense, is also going to fall to the UN. In short, so to wrap it up, from your perspective, does the UN need some kind of reform? There are many debates, especially about expanding the UN Security Council, because many people would argue, and I think it's a fair argument, that the Security Council doesn't reflect the reality of this world anymore. It was, of course, established after the Second World War when the world was very different. I think that there's definitely a clear case for reform. The P5 reflect the reality of our parents' generation, not reflect the reality of ours, right? But then I think the question is, well, what do you do about the veto? And it's a hard thing to say that we want permanent... so like the the AU position is always, our goals are a permanent seat and a veto. Okay. The challenge is, well, could you accept one of those and not the other? But then that's not terribly fair, right? And obviously this is designed to combat it. You know, it just sort of reinforces colonial rhetoric. And that does also raise the case for discussions about delimiting the veto. I definitely think there's lots to fix. I think one of the issues though, that's not getting the attention that it should is the UN funding mechanisms. You know, if it doesn't have the money to solve these problems, then, you know, that's the, you know, as Americans would say, that's the ball game. And I do think that we need to think about how the UN is funded going forward. And I think this is so a lot of discussions about reforms, but until we get to making sure the UN has the tools to do its job, it's not going to be as effective in solving some of these problems that we're going to delegate to it that it needs to be. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode.
Thank you for listening and stay tuned.